Hello, hello. This is Katavani. Welcome back to another episode of Ramayana, Ayodhya Khanda, episode 26, Grief in Chitrakuta. Thank you for listening. While Bharata and the citizens of Ayodhya were making their way to Rama, Rama, along with Sita and Lakshmana, was settling in quite nicely in Chitrakuta. Rama lived the simple life of an ascetic in the beautiful Chitrakuta mountains, carrying out his everyday duties as a Kshatriya warrior, as well as spiritual duties and meditation. Sita spent her time enjoying the beautiful scenery, the flower-laden trees, the birds, deers and other small animals gathering on the riverbank and around their hut in the forest. True to her words to Rama, she was just as content here as an ascetic's wife as she had been as a princess in the palaces in Mithila and Ayodhya. She picked flowers and made garlands for her neck and arms instead of wearing gold ornaments. She joined the brothers to collect fruits, roots and nuts. Sita thrived under Rama's care and protection. Lakshmana reluctantly came to accept his beloved brother Rama and Sita roughing it out in the forest instead of enjoying the perks of being crown prince and princess. His discontent was not for his plight, but expecting Rama's discomfort. Rama suffered no discomfort, discontent or regrets. In these peaceful surroundings, he was satisfied, practicing his spiritual obligations and entertaining Sita during their leisure. Sita and Lakshmana's presence heightened his enjoyment of everything around them. Together, they delighted in the changing colors and sparkle of the mineral-rich mountains, the wild animals that roamed fearlessly around the inhabitants, and the variety of migratory and local flocks of birds. There was an abundance of trees bearing edible fruits of immense variety, mangoes, rose apples, pomegranate, bilva, figs, chikus, jackfruit, and sugarcane. The trees in the enchanting forest and along the banks of River Mandakini were laden with fragrant and colorful flowers and provided cool shade. Rama repeated to Sita often how in these surroundings with her next to him, he did not mind the simple life of an ascetic in the forest. He appreciated that fulfilling his father's promise as a duty was giving him the pleasure of living in this paradise with her and giving Bharata the opportunity to be king. The trio spent their free time observing the various animals, gazelles, deers, elephants, buffaloes, wild boars, tigers, panthers, and other native beasts that came to different parts of the river for water. They enjoyed identifying the different flocks of birds and herds of animals that stopped by morning and evening near these watering holes by their ashram. The young princes and princess entertained themselves, watching the people as well. Rishis offering their prayers by the river banks, indigenous tribal people washing up and fetching water to take back home, and warriors and visitors passing by stopped to freshen up by the river. Rama, Lakshmana, and Sita usually sat some distance away on a mount under the shade of trees, watching the happenings on the river bank. Maharishi Valmiki describes these blissful interactions and the beauty of Chitrakuta Mountains and Mandakini River 
the activity and serenity in the woods and on the river banks in great detail, taking up two chapters in Ayodhya Khanda. Even as they relaxed in these beautiful surroundings, Rama and Lakshmana were always alert and watchful, day and night, their bows and quivers of arrows close by. One such day, they launched on a slope, their usual spot near their hut, cooking meat over a sacred fire. Suddenly, they noticed the disturbance among the birds and small animals. Flocks of birds flew up into the sky as one, screeching. Small animals scattered out of the bushes and monkeys on the trees around them shrieked with agitation. As they wondered if it was caused by animals or men, they saw dust rise up to the sky in the distance and heard the ruckus of bigger animals, herds of elephants, buffaloes and gazelles rushing deeper into the forest, sounding alarm. Rama asked Lakshmana to investigate quickly and exactly what was causing all the upheaval incursion by wild beasts, hunters, or something else. Lakshmana scaled a tall sala tree nearby and scrutinized the surroundings. He called out to his brother, asking Rama to put out their fire, since a huge army with horses, elephants, and chariots was approaching Chitrakuta from the north side. Just then, they heard loud, cheerful cries in the distance. We know this was when Bharata's caravan had seen the smoke from Rama's fire. Meanwhile, Lakshmana spotted the insignia of the banners and flags carried by the army and informed Rama that the familiar emblem of Ayodhya, the white trunk Kovidara tree, was on the flags and banners of the approaching army. Lakshmana suspected that Bharata not satisfied with the kingdom and with the intention to remove future obstacles to his rule, had amassed the people, an army against them, to slay him and Rama. Lakshmana courageously proposed to Rama that they leave Sita in the safety of a nearby cave, suit up in armor and carry their weapons to a vantage point and prepare for battle to take on the army from Ayodhya. He reassured Rama that there was no sin in slaying their beloved brothers and kinsmen who turned against them. He spoke high-spirited words of their victory and destruction to Bharata and his army. Maharishi Valmiki gives poetic expression to Lakshmana's rage, courage and confidence in this chapter. Rama calmly told Lakshmana that if Bharata, their beloved brother was indeed approaching, he would need no weapons to welcome him. He amusedly asked Lakshmana, after taking up this ascetic's life, what would I do with the kingdom gained after slaying my brothers and my people? Without you, Bharata and Shatrughna, any joy or happiness that comes to me will be reduced to ashes. He explained to Lakshmana that Bharata must have just returned home from his maternal grandfather's home in Kekaya, heard the news of their exile and was approaching them to visit on his own accord or by their father's wishes. Lakshmana, impatient to prepare for the impending war, convinced in his mind about Kaikeyi and by association Bharata's conniving minds, disagreed strongly about Bharata's intentions. He entreated Rama to prepare to fight. Rama disarmingly told Lakshmana, 
If you are saying these words for the sake of a kingdom, I have no doubts that I just have to tell Bharata to give you the kingdom, and he will do it without a moment's hesitation. Lakshmana, mortified by Rama's words, regained his composure and responded with self-restraint. Yes, you may be right. It may also be our beloved father who could not bear the separation from you. Rama gently smiled at Lakshmana and agreed that maybe their father missed them all and was coming to see them and return with them or Sita to the palace. Meanwhile, Bharata, accompanied by Guha, Shatrugna and Sumatra, led the way towards the wisp of smoke that his scouts had confirmed was the location of Rama. He requested Sage Vasishta to accompany the queens along with their guards and follow their path slowly. Along the way, he noticed the knots of grass, bark garments and strips of bark tied on trees and shrubs as signs to mark and show the way back to Rama's ashram. He followed the well-trodden path to Rama's hut past Dvarmandakini, noticing the markings of inhabitants nearby. Cut firewood piles, neatly stacked down cakes used in fire, etc. He came upon Rama's hut that he knew Lakshmana must have constructed with careful thought. He saw Rama and Lakshmana's sword scabbards hanging alongside their colorful shields, arrows and quivers next to their finger guards, and kusa grass spread upon the ground on the hut. Looking around, he saw Rama seated on the ground, wearing clothes made of bark with matted hair, pulled up in ascetic styles, still looking majestic, like Lord Brahma, the creator of the world. Bharata wordlessly rushed to Rama with Chatrugna following close behind. Rama embraced them both cheerfully, as did Lakshmana, whose suspicions were fully removed by the sight of Bharata's emaciated, grief-stricken appearance. The brothers cheerfully reunited. Rama and Lakshmana greeted Guha and Sumatra, who were delighted to be together again. Rama sat his beloved brother Bharata next to him, noticing Bharata's disheveled, unadorned appearance. He inquired about their father, the mighty king Dasharatha, and what had brought Bharata away from home along with Chatrugna and Sumatra, depriving his father of the company of all his sons and much-needed advisers. He inquired about the welfare of the noble queens, sage Vasishta and the other priests. He inquired how Bharata was getting on with his new responsibilities of ruling the kingdom, asking him pertinent questions about the administrative and royal duties. Bharata did not have to explain to Rama, as he did to Guha and sage Bharadwaja, that he was not involved in the decision to exile Rama. Rama knew and moreover had no hard feelings about his exile. Rama serenely, without any mental conflicts, believed he was carrying out his wise and beloved father's wishes, his duty, just as Bharata, Lakshmana, Ashatrugna would be bound to as well. He was unaffected by the loss of material and worldly positions, status and comforts. Bharata sorrowfully narrated to Rama that he, Bharata, would be straying from righteousness, dharma, if he took on royal duties that didn't rightfully belong to him as the younger son. 
he entreated Rama to return home to be consecrated as king. He informed Rama that while he, Bharata, was still in Kekaya, Rama had left Ayodhya for his exile and King Dasharatha had ascended to heaven, breathing his last, remembering Rama alone, unable to bear the grief of the separation, unwilling to live any longer without Rama. Hearing this unexpected news of his father's death, Rama fell down unconscious. On being revived by his brothers and Sita, he lamented sorely about their loss. He agreed that there was no more reason to be in Ayodhya bereft of its chief, the foremost among its citizens, the best amongst kings. Bharata informed him that he and Shatrughna had completed the last rites of their father and that Rama and Lakshmana should offer water libations and complete their duties to their father. Rama asked Lakshmana to gather fruit pulp cakes to make as an offering to their father's departed soul. Lakshmana then led the way to River Mandakini, followed by Sita and Rama, to perform the last rites of their father. The brothers completed the water libations to King Dasharatha under the guidance of the chief counsellor Sumatra and offered the Ingudi fruit pulp as Pinda libation food offerings to their dear departed father. Sage Vasishta, accompanied by the queens, came upon this scene as the brothers were completing the last rites for King Dasharatha. This was the first time the queens were seeing their son since they'd left Ayodhya. Bharata was unwavering in his resolution to follow tradition, remove confusion and make things right again. In the next episode, we will see how Bharata's attempts to convince Rama to return to Ayodhya work out. Until then, Ram Ram, Queen Kausalya, remarked to Queen Sumitra how Lakshmana's selfless service to Rama and Sita showed his incomparable virtues rather than his subservience. Rama, Sita and Lakshmana paid their respects to the queens who were deeply saddened by the situation and utterly delighted to be together again. The queens tearfully embraced the two brothers and Sita. Queen Kausalya was especially aggrieved by the living conditions Sita had to endure in the forest, away from the attendance and luxury of the palace. Rama greeted sage Vasishta and offered him a seat of honor and sat nearby as well, with Bharata seated next to him. Word had been sent to the waiting crowd to carefully make their way to the ashram. Now all were gathered, the citizens and the army of Ayodhya, and were waiting for the brothers to speak. Bharata openly pleaded in front of like-minded audience for Rama to return home to be consecrated king. He blamed his mother Kaikeyi for bringing disrepute to their father by ordering Rama's exile. Rama responded that Bharata, being wise, knew that their father made the decision to uphold truth out of his own free will and to send Rama to the forest in exile for 14 years. He reiterated that he had no intention of breaking his word to his father. The rest of the evening and night was spent in discussions and lamentations about their loss their father's accomplishments, charities, sacrifices, and victories, 
as well as his kind words and actions towards his sons and his citizens. The next morning, the discussions about returning home resumed. Bharata addressed Rama. Dear brother, the kingdom came to me to satisfy my mother. I give it back to you. Please agree to be king without any obstacles. No one except you is qualified to be king after our father. Your rule is like the fruit that appears on a tree a man planted and nurtured for many years. Without that fruit, the man's decades-long efforts would be wasted. Give the trade guilds, the army divisions, the leaders of citizens and the citizens of the kingdom in towns and villages the pleasure of seeing you ascend the throne as king. Rama firmly responded with many verses of advice to Bharata to overcome his grief about the passing of time and one's lifetime and the importance of living an honorable life. He noted that only his father's charitable and righteous acts and adherence to truth would have gained him a place in heaven. Rama maintained that he would indeed obey his father's command to live in exile for 14 years, and violating his father's order was not an option he'd consider, and neither should Bharata. He asked Bharata to return home to his duty in Beking, following in their father's footsteps, using their father's conduct and long years of ruling the kingdom as a worthy model. Rama was strong in his convictions to stand by his word and duty to his father. The Ramayana version narrated here is sourced from the original Sanskrit version, Maharishi Valmiki's Ramayana, from many thousand years ago. I found the online resource Gita Supersite valuable to access Maharishi Valmiki's Sanskrit verses of Ramayana as well as its English translation. A renowned Indian statesman, Rajaji's Tamil book Chakravarti Tirmagan, a contemporary retelling of Ramayana, has also been immensely useful due to Rajaji's scholarly commentary making it accessible to my present-day sensibilities. I've also leaned on many different versions of books that bring Ramayana to every household in India. Maharishi Valmiki's Ramayana Contemporaneous to Rama's lifetime is 24,000 verses long and was taught to his disciples and passed on through several thousands of years in the oral tradition of Guru Sishya Parampara as well as by storytellers. An uplifting story about all the diverse human conditions still present today and how to navigate the turmoils of life serenely with truth, satya, and dharma, duty as the guiding principles, the Ramayana is just as relevant today as it was then and in the times in between. Its eternal popularity also owes very much to the human characters, their uplifting attributes, mistakes, sacrifices, fall from grace, loss, and all their adventures. Rama shows us how to lead a full life exemplary, peaceful, and balanced, despite unexpected ordeals, just like Krishna tells us in Bhagavad Gita. Maharishi Valmiki has also left behind a treasure in his account, including information about ancient sages, ancient philosophies, spiritual practices, geographical landscape, ancient cities and kingdoms, 
routes between kingdoms, across rivers, mountains and their distances, social rules, etc., that he weaves into the narrative via the characters' quests and conversations. There have been several retellings since Maharishi Valmiki's times in many regional languages in India and outside through the ages. One such version is also Ramavataram by a renowned Tamil poet Kambar, who lived in the 12th century. Kambar was a renowned scholar in Sanskrit and Tamil and was commissioned by the local Torah emperor to write the Ramayana in Tamil verses to reach the masses. Rather than translate, Kambar authored a captivating magnum opus, 11,000 stanzas long, an epic in its own league in Tamil. It is celebrated and widely read to this day. Just as poet Cumber's work was preceded by earlier retellings throughout the several millennia in Tamil and other languages, his work was followed by many. Notable amongst these is the elder statesman Rajaji's retelling in the 20th century. Rajaji served as the governor of newly created state of West Bengal in 1947, right after the partition of India, and served as independent India's first governor general until 1950. He had the distinction to be the premier of Madras state, the present-day Tamil Nadu, in, around nine, in the 1950s, both before and after independence. After Rajaji retired from political life and activism, he dedicated the remainder of his life to spiritual pursuits. A scholar, multilinguist, proficient in Tamil, Hindi, Sanskrit, and English, he made several literary contributions in Tamil and English and also composed spiritual music that is still popular. In his book, Chakravarti Tirmagan, a retelling of Ramayana in Tamil, he has been faithful to Maharishi Valmiki's original in Sanskrit from many thousand years ago and also captures the poetic beauty of Kambar's 12th century Ramavataram. Rajaji's commentary fills the gaps and brings together many versions including Santulsida's Bhakti Sokta Ramayana as well. I am grateful to have had all these resources and great literary works to read and inspire my narration. As always, thank you so much for listening. Ram Ram.